This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 21st, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, I talk with science news writer Robert Service about bacteria engineered to make bricks and keep the indoor environment clean. Next, we hear from Paul Davids about his research into making electricity from waste heat emitted by cars. Finally, we have a special segment featuring online news editor David Grimm and producer Megan Cantwell. They give us a rundown of the news published at the AAAS meeting in Seattle. Now we have staff writer Robert Service. He's here to tell us about engineered living materials, things like exponentially replicating living bricks and instant runways. Hi, Bob. Hi, Sarah. Okay, we're talking about engineered living materials. Can you break these terms down for us? It's basically just using organisms, mostly microbes, to make materials. The idea of using organisms to make materials in any form has been around forever. Of course, we use trees to make wood. We use cotton plants to for the cotton to make textiles. So in the last couple of decades, there's been many, many examples where synthetic biologists have been using genetic engineering tools to tweak the genes of mostly microbes to get them to make all kinds of different molecules. They might be medicines, they might be improved production of ethanol or probably hundreds of examples. But what folks have been doing the last couple of years have now been trying to use some of those same genetic engineering tools to get microbes to make materials. So think of things like replacements for bricks, wood-like materials, or something like that. The metaphor of coral that you used in your story was really helpful for understanding this. So there are organisms that do this all the time. Coral organisms secrete a form of bio-cement that makes the coral reef. People are just trying to take advantage of some of that building prowess and put it to use in new ways. In this case, engineers are using microbes to build things like bricks. So how would that work? What do you do with the bacteria to make it grow a brick for you? 
There is an example of a Raleigh, North Carolina company called Biomason. They use bacteria to essentially synthesize calcium carbonate, which forms the cement around granules of sand. And so you can basically make a bio cement. The reason why you might want to do that is normally when bricks or cement for concrete is made, it takes a vast amount of energy to do that. You have to have kilns to heat the bricks to a thousand degrees. You have to fire them for long periods of time. By going through a different route with engineered living materials, you can think about doing this at room temperature and therefore potentially reduce your cost quite a bit. And your carbon footprint, right? And you, and certainly your carbon footprint, yeah. Yeah. Do you have to keep the bacteria alive inside a brick if the bacteria grow the brick? Normally, the way they do it is they start with sand and some nutrients for the bacteria and water, and they form this slurry, and then the bacteria grow. Then after a few days, they begin to allow the bricks to dry out. And as they do, then the bacteria will die If these cells stay alive, if these microbes stay alive, could they keep making bricks? Now, there is one example that we wrote about about some researchers at the University of Colorado who are sort of taking the same idea to another level. And they, in a way, they sort of like create like a sourdough starter in bread making. You know, in a sourdough, you keep a starter that has your yeast or whatever, and you use some of it to make a particular loaf of bread. And then you add a little more of the starter material and they get that to reproduce and you just keep doing that. And people keep their starters for for years and years. In the same way, what they're doing is they're getting bricks to reproduce themselves. So they, again, do that slurry of the nutrients and the sand and, and they make a brick. They keep it in a state where it's, the organisms are still viable and then they divide the brick in two, and then they add more nutrients and more sand, things like that, to make two bricks, which happens in a, in a matter of hours. Wow. And, and then they can do that generation after generation. So you go one to two to four to eight. Oh, it's and, exponential, exponential bricks. Right. So yeah, they're, they're cool. growing bricks. Yeah. What about this runway that you mentioned in your story? In this case, a group made a very large prototype of a full-scale runway. The idea there is, is, you know, if you're the military and you want to set up an expeditionary runway in some hotspot around the world, you don't want to have to carry all the sand and aggregate with you and and everything else you would need to make a runway. You can just use local material, bring in some drums of uh, the bacteria that'll do the job, and you give it some water and you're off to the races. There's also this idea that you might use living bricks in your walls to purify the air. You could just make surfaces that uh, harbor bacteria to get them to do different jobs you want them to do. Uh, And one of those jobs people are considering is to purify the air. So get rid of any toxins in the air or contaminants or something like that. We write about a group from China and the U.S. that started with a bacteria called Bacillus cetolysis. And that bacteria secretes a protein. Once it's outside the body of the bacteria, it links up with lots of other members of its own kind and creates a matrix that the bacteria then can live on. And they use that to make what is called a biofilm. And there's lots of these biofilms out there in the real world. Bacteria colonize our teeth that way. That's how ship hulls get colonies on them. In this case, the folks 
tweaked this protein in order to bind different enzymes. And they did two different things. One, they bound an enzyme to this matrix that makes this biofilm that breaks down a toxic compound. And then they went on to show that it worked. The enzyme remained viable. It, in fact, degraded that toxin. And then they went one step beyond that. And they said, okay, well, can we culture a mix of bacteria that do more than one chemical job at a time? So in this case, they did a two-step reaction to break down a pesticide. And in that case, in order to break it down, the first bacteria had to do its job with one enzyme to do the first reaction. And then a second bacteria had to generate another reaction to do a second job. And that that worked. It's the idea that you can create a mix of organisms to detoxify things that could be in your environment. We talked about the built environment, but now we're going to talk about the medical world. So how might these engineered living materials work in medicine? One way in which that might happen is through the use of these biofilms again. So another group that we write about from Northeastern University in the U.S., what they're doing is they are engineering a different matrix-forming protein, and it also helps bacteria form biofilms. And in this case, they're getting it to bind the cellular lining of your gut in order to allow the bacteria, which there are already many healthy kinds of bacteria that help line the gut. So what they're trying to do is for patients with inflammatory bowel disease, in which part of that lining breaks down and can cause painful ulcers, they're trying to restore that by making a, a natural environment conducive for these bacteria to then go in and set up a new biofilm to offer protection for people with the disease. So you would introduce these engineered bacteria that are really good at making a biofilm. Correct. You can also engineer bacteria to work inside materials to do other things. So we write about another example where researchers at MIT have come up with a way to 3D print bacterial spores. So spores are the dormant form of a, of a bacteria. And so they put these in a 3D printer, they print them onto a plastic matrix under the right conditions, the spores will germinate new bacteria. Those bacteria are then engineered to synthesize an antibacterial compound, which fights a microbe called Staph aureus, which is a dangerous hospital infection. So in that case, you could have materials designed to sort of perpetually fight off hospital-acquired infections. So like a self-disinfecting surface for hospitals. Potentially. That's kind of the way it's going. I want to just add a little note here at the end about regulation. So, so most of this stuff is probably not going to fall to the Food and Drug Administration or the EPA to regulate. But are there some areas that might need to have some oversight when it comes to engineering, engineered living materials? The way that most researchers in the field are thinking about it, they're, they're trying to keep all this in mind, all, all the regulatory issues in mind as they begin these experiments. If you have, for example, are making bio-cement in which you're using a natural organism, there's not really any problems with that from regulators going forward because you're not doing anything nature doesn't do already. It's really just the question of, are you going to be introducing an engineered organism into the environment? And in that case, there will certainly be scrutiny from regulators. And the FDA is perhaps the example where if you're doing something that might have a medical use, there's already a very well-trodden system set up to regulate foods and medicines and drugs. So 
I think people are pretty comfortable with understanding how that regulation is going to roll out. But if, for example, if you want to make engineered walls that detoxify the air, it's less clear how the process is going to unfold to to get some of those technologies approved. Mm -hmm. All right, Bob, thank you so much. You're welcome, Sarah. Robert Service is a staff writer for science based in Portland, Oregon. You can find a link to his article at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Paul Davids about harvesting waste heat and converting it to electricity. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Waste heat. It's all around us, created in factories, power plants, even our homes, and it's just released into the ether. Is there a way to capture it and make it do useful work? Paul Davids and colleagues published a paper this week on a way to convert waste heat into electricity. Hi, Paul. Hello, Sarah. So let's talk about waste heat. What sources are you targeting with this new technology? We're talking about essentially data centers where where they generate lots of heat, and that has to be managed actually by air conditioning. We're also talking about cars the temperatures of exhaust fumes in a car are roughly 400 C. Oh. So you could imagine converting that into electrical power and maybe charging like a hybrid type of car. Well, how much waste heat do we make? Is there any estimate out there for that? I think on average, people believe that we waste about 20% of the energy that we consume. To just heating the environment around us. Yes, it just goes off into the environment. Huh. And so that's carried away by three different types of mechanisms. There's atmosphere around us, so a lot of it is convectively removed. Mm -hmm. It's also conducted away. And the type of energy that we're trying to recover is the type that is radiated away through light or infrared light. Right. So you just think about it as another part of the spectrum where the waves are longer. That's what your target area is. That's right. So I hate to say something as topical as this, but, (laughs) you know, people are screening people that have viruses by looking at them through infrared cameras and they're emitting heat. So you can tell the temperature of a person without ever having to touch them. And so that's the type of heat that we're trying to get. We're trying to convert infrared radiation, which is this invisible part of the spectrum, into electrical power. Immediately when you talk about this, this is light. This is part of the electromagnetic spectrum. So I think this is like solar power. You could use something like a solar cell, which takes photons and makes electricity. But here you're targeting a very specific part of the spectrum, the infrared part. So is this the idea you started with, um, something like a solar cell? That was kind of the model that we followed. Yeah. The problem is, is that like with a solar cell, you're dealing with the sun and the sun is an exceptionally hot object. It's roughly 6,000 degrees C, so it emits light in the visible range. And so there's ways of converting that based on semiconductor types of conversion and photovoltaics, which is common. So what we tried to do was find a way that we could scale it to the invisible part or the lower energy photons in the solar spectrum. 
you can't do it the exact same way. So we came up with a new mechanism that uses essentially an artificially structured device that kind of mimics the same type of response. What happens to a photon when it enters your device? The device is actually two devices. It's really a photonic device and an electronic device. Mm -hmm. The photonic device is used to kind of concentrate the infrared radiation and to resonantly couple it into a really teeny tiny gap. Mm -hmm. So the photonic device confines it. And what that does is it now has it in a region where we can use quantum mechanical tunneling in the electronic conversion part to essentially shuttle charge back and forth and pump charge in a one-way type of mm-hmm. like a ratchet and a pawl, if you will, and charge wells. And that creates essentially a voltage. It's very similar to what happens in a photovoltaic, but it's using this tunneling instead of absorption of the photon in a semiconductor material. Quantum tunneling is this quantum effect that is used in some kinds of electronics, but it hasn't typically been used in photovoltaics, right? That is right. So the normal photovoltaic has a band gap, a region of forbidden energy, and you absorb photons in this region, and then you can split them in an electric field. And the the electrons and the absence of an electron called a hole go and charge essentially the photovoltaic. So they create a voltage across the device. Mm-hmm. Even though you're using a different mechanism here to get electricity out of photons, the device still uses the framework, the same materials as traditional photovoltaics, right? Yes. One of the things that we tried to do is stick with a set of materials like silicon and standard silicon processing so that we could make it scalable. Because one of the problems is is that like when you're looking at the solar spectrum, there's a lot of energy in that spectrum, especially in the visible light. But as the temperature of the object goes from 6,000 C down to 100 C or 200 C, then it comes way, way down in terms of output power. So that's one of the reasons why we wanted to essentially make a scalable technology so that we could surround our thermal source. You're using a framework that's already available at scale, and then you can have a lot of it because you're going to have to convert a lot of heat to get electricity. So what is the temperature range here that this can operate? You know, what are the limits? Is it harder to go to higher temperatures and get that electricity out of that? Or is it harder to go to lower temperatures and get the electricity out of that? The lower the temperature, the less power is in a a fixed band. So that's one of the issues. But the other thing is, is, as I said, this is a resonant device and we require that the photons get confined in this thin gap. So we're really limited by essentially a material resonance that we're using to get this huge field enhancement in these sub-wavelength gaps. So we use silicon dioxide, which is the standard material that they use it for gate oxides in, in silicon fabrication facilities. And that has this material phonon resonance that is roughly at eight microns. Mm -hmm. So that's where the 400 degrees C comes from. Oh, so your material is kind of picking the temperature for you. Right. And so we can we can use other materials in the gate oxide and scale out to longer wavelengths, which would Mm -hmm. be lower temperatures. Could you put those all in the same device? You could. And we're actually examining that in the future. What we would like to be able to do, there's techniques which allow you to grow these films very precisely And we want to start looking at stacks of these types of thin oxides. Very cool. Let me ask you some number questions here. How can we quantify the amount of electricity that could come out of this system? Can you give me some numbers on that and maybe some context for that? 
right now, the temperature and the emission of the thermal source really limits the amount of power that is incident on the device. And that really sets the ultimate limit for conversion, which Mm -hmm. is related to also kind of Carnot type of arguments, which are these arguments on limits of efficiency of a perfect engine. But as it stands right now, where the incident power is kind of remarkable in the sense that moderate temperature sources, let's say at 400 C, have roughly hundreds of milliwatts per square centimeter that are available for harvesting. And that's a fairly reasonable amount of power, provided you can harness it over many, many square centimeters. Mm-hmm. Clearly, as the temperature goes down, the amount of power goes down. Mm-hmm. So roughly, we're looking at, for some of our better devices, about 0.4% conversion of that power into electrical power. So it's really not like a grid scale power option right. yet, but we were, we're working on improving the efficiency through those things that we discussed. But it would never make sense to be like, my roof gets really hot. I'm going to put this kind of cell on the roof. That's right. You said it was a 0.4% conversion, but yes. solar cells are what, 13? Is that where they're at? 13 to, 13 to 20 for like a, a silicon solar cell. We think we can get to 4%, which makes us competitive with thermoelectrics, which are roughly 6%. Mm -hmm. But thermoelectrics are really, really hard materials to work with. It's a very mature technology, and it is the technology to knock off. Do you see this as more useful in going after like giant sources, like things that are really, really hot? Or do you see it more useful as sliding into all these different places in our lives, be it cars, the back of the oven, wherever we're heating things up incidentally. It's not going after the hot sources. We're trying to scale to lower temperature sources. And one of the key applications we see is potentially as a thermoelectric replacement. So Mm -hmm. when you have something like an uh, exhaust pipe, you could essentially recover energy from that. One area that motivated this work was for deep space exploration. And so you could have small power supplies that power electronics that last forever. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the advantage of doing these thermoelectric generators or making this essentially a a power supply. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you so much, Paul. Oh, you're welcome. Paul Davids is a principal member of the technical staff in applied photonics and microsystems at Sandia National Labs. You can find a link to his science paper at sciencemag.org podcast. Stay tuned for a roundup of stories from the AAAS annual meeting in Seattle. Hi, everyone. This is the Science Magazine podcast. We're a weekly podcast. We usually have two segments a week that cover research or news on the site and in print. And I'm Megan Cantwell, one of the producers for the podcast. I also work on videos at Science. And I'm here with Dave Grimm, who's the online news editor at Science. And we're going to just go over a few of the stories that Science has been covering at annual meeting. We picked three of them, and there are several others in the works that will most likely be published as well. Thanks so much for joining me, Dave. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we're going to start with a story about wildfire smoke, which has been in the news a lot, not only in Australia, but in California more locally, too. What exactly are the risks of wildfire smoke? Why is it so hazardous? We tend to think, Megan, like of smoke being hazardous. But, you know, the question is, like, is there something particularly hazardous about wildfire smoke versus right. like just smoke from like a burning building yeah. or something else? And that's what researchers are trying to figure out. And it turns out, you know, when wildfires spread, they can pick up a lot of particulate matter mm-hmm. from trees and plastic and other debris. And it, they can create these sort of fine particulate matter. When this matter gets into our lungs, it can actually cause a lot of problems. And so there seems to be something maybe especially in about wildfire smoke. 
And we're seeing a lot of recurring wildfires recently as well, like in California, it seems like every week we're hearing about a different. Are there studies right now into the effects of long-term exposure to multiple wildfires, people inhaling the smoke multiple times? Yeah, that's a good question. So we know short-term wildfires can cause things like asthma, but there was this interesting kind of almost accidental study where there were monkeys that were exposed, monkeys that were living sort of in an out out sort of enclosure that were exposed to wildfire smoke during one of the wildfire seasons. And researchers were actually able to study them over about 10 years. And what they found was the young monkeys that were born around the time of the fires, their lungs tended to be smaller and stayed small and Mm -hmm. tended to be stiff as well, even throughout their lifetime. And some of these effects seem to actually be passed down, especially harmful immunological effects seem to be passed down to their offspring. And so now it's not in humans, Mm -hmm. but it's some of the first evidence in animals, the first solid evidence we have that wildfires can cause potentially not only long lasting damage, but damage that could be passed down theoretically de- generation from to generation. And these were in younger monkeys. There's also more vulnerable populations that we know in human populations that right. are impacted more greatly by wildfire smoke as well. Right. We know that old people, pregnant women, children, just like these demographics tend to be susceptible to other things as well. They mm-hmm. tend to be particularly susceptible to wildfires. What are the best ways, I guess, if there is a wildfire <laughs> in your area, how do you stay safe? Yeah, it's tough. And, and the researchers say stay indoors, which may seem kind of obvious, but also things yeah. like turn on your air conditioning because your air conditioning will sometimes be able okay. to filter out some of these particulates. Avoid exercise. This is like one of the few times where, you know, a health expert is telling you not to I'll exercise, but actually <laughs> exercise on. can make you sort of be breathing a lot more, which okay. can cause you to inhale a lot more. And avoid candles, incense, smoky cooking, anything that's going to add to the smoke that you might already yeah. be inhaling. That makes sense. All right. And moving on to another session that science has covered at annual meeting, which is about the crime rate in sanctuary cities. This study specifically focused on California. Can you talk about what the law is that they were studying, SB 54? Well, right. So, you know, there was this kind of government mandate from the Trump administration that really put a lot of severe restrictions on immigration and really what police could do in terms of trying to ferret out supposed illegal immigrants. Mm-hmm. And California in 2017 made itself what was called a sanctuary state, which basically passed local and state laws that basically blocked a lot of these federal laws. And a lot of critics said, oh, you know, now California is going to be overrun with crime because, mm-hmm. you know, there's going to be immigrants all coming in and you don't want to know what their background is going to be and the police aren't going to be able to enforce them. So this study was is really the first to determine, is that really true? Does a state or a municipality that makes itself a sanctuary place, is it more susceptible to crime than, than a place that doesn't do that? And ideally, they would be able to have two study groups, one that, right. where the law is enacted and another where it isn't, but it's enacted all across California. So they weren't able to do that. And instead, they kind of made a simulation of what the crime rate in California would have been like if there was no SB 54. Right. What were the results of that comparing this simulation versus what the actual crime rate has been since 2017? Right. They needed a control. So they sort of created this virtual California by looking at very similar parts of the country mm-hmm. uh, in other places other than California and comparing them over a couple years to what was happening in California. And what they found was they found really no effect of the sanctuary mm-hmm. state. The crime did not increase. It basically stayed the same. So their conclusion is that if a state makes itself a sanctuary state, it's no more susceptible to crime and crime is certainly not going to increase, at least according to this preliminary study, versus something that does not make itself a sanctuary state. And California isn't the first to pass a law of this sort. There are other cities as well that have made made themselves sanctuary cities. Does this support what other cities have also seen in their crime rates? Maybe not studies, it's in-depth. Yeah, I don't don't know if any of those other studies have been done. You know, one caveat here is that because this is so preliminary, and you mentioned sort of 
creating a virtual California, yeah. right? And so we we, only, we don't have a whole lot of data now. And so what experts are saying is this is really interesting. It's very suggestive that you know, making something a sanctuary state is not going to necessarily open it up to crime. Mm -hmm. But it does suggest that, you know, what you really want to do is be able to gather more data before you pass any policies. Like, you wouldn't want to, like, enact a policy based on just this one study. Mm -hmm. And the researchers themselves are actually trying to gather more data right now. And since it is from 2017, it's not very long study That's right. Yet. Exactly. Exactly. All right. And moving on to the last story we're going to talk about that's been published is a little bit meta, kind of what we're doing, <laughs> communicating science, right. and what really influences whether people trust science. So this researcher looked at a bunch of different categories to see if it influences whether they trust science or what they perceive science to be. So let's start first with what exactly the scientific topic being discussed is. Does the topic influence how people perceive the information and whether they trust it? Yeah, the scientific topic is one of the, these five factors that matters most. And it turns out, you know, there's actually topics that the scientists and the public agree upon. So mm -hmm. if you ask a random sample of the public or a scientist, do you think the International Space Station is a good idea? Yeah. In fact, the majority of both groups, the public and scientists say it is. Mm -hmm. But then if you choose a different topic, like GM foods, that's when you start to see a big split. So for example, you know, only 37, even about a third of the public says GM foods are safe to eat mm. versus almost 90% of scientists. So, so it really depends on the topic, how close the scientific consensus is to what the public thinks about a, a particular issue. Gender and culture also play a role in how people perceive this information as well. For sure, yeah. One of the things that some of these surveys found is that men overall tend to perceive themselves as more knowledgeable about mm -hmm. science than women do. But it really varies by country. So, for example, in northern Europe, you saw one of the highest disparities. So there, men are about 17% more likely than women to say they know some or a lot about science, mm. regardless of whether they actually do. Right. <laughs> um, their perception of it. Exactly, perception, right. Whereas in North America, it's actually pretty close. It's a, The gap is only about 7%. Okay. And in places like the Middle East, the gap is only about 3%. Hmm. So it really depends on what part of the world you're in. So culture is kind of also impacting important, gender, too, for sure. in that way. Yeah. And then there's also the influence of political parties sure, yeah. on how you perceive information. And I thought it was it wasn't exactly what I expected it to be. Can you go into that? No, yeah, and you know, we I think we have some some stereotypes about, you know, Republicans believe this and Democrats believe that. And I yeah. think a lot of that stuff does play true. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that among Republicans and Democrats with a low amount of scientific knowledge, there's a lot of distrust among both most groups or misperceptions about science. Yeah. And when you talk about more educated Republicans and Democrats, mm -hmm. that's when you see a bigger split, where the Republicans are saying, oh, you know, science can be used to, to say whatever you want to say, where Democrats are usually saying, no, you know, like, we should believe science, we should trust it, what science says is actually what it is. And so it really depends on not just looking at Republicans versus Democrats, but what kind of educational background, what kind of scientific background they have can really make some differences, even within political party. Yeah, it's the opposite of what I thought it would be, sure. that more education would mean there's more agreement. Of course, yeah, I was really surprised the about that too, around. for sure. Lastly, one of the things they talked about was who's delivering the message. Right. That impacts how people are perceiving the science as well. Right. So who do people trust when it comes to who's delivering the information? And this one isn't as surprising. So, for example, if a doctor or a healthcare worker were to tell you something scientific, people are much more likely to believe that than if mm -hmm. a politician tells them something. Yep. That one wasn't as surprising, but it still was one of the big factors that the researchers say people need to keep in mind. You need to kind of keep all these factors in mind when you're trying to communicate with the public, when you're trying to get a sense of where they're coming from, because if you want to try to meet them halfway or 
understand what biases they might be coming in with, it's really helpful to know what their background is, culture, gender, political party. That can maybe help build some more bridges between scientists and the public. So I guess that's the next step, is incorporating right. this research into actually communicating Exactly, it, for sure. Tailoring it to the right audience. So that kind of wraps the three stories we were going to talk about, but there's also a bunch of other stories that's that right. are going to be published soon. Do you want to maybe talk about a few that are yeah. in the works? I'll just mention a few. So we're, we've done a story about how you can donate brain tissue while you're still alive. Scary. <laughs> uh, also about your digital afterlife. What happens to all of your tweets, your Facebook posts, yeah. Instagram, everything? How does that follow you after death? And that's really interesting. And we're, we're, we're hoping to do a story on, on that towards the end of the meeting. And also, should you compost your body? And how might you do that? And why might you do that? Do you have an answer to that yet? <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Uh, I have not seen that story yet, but it is, it is a story we have planned. So there's, there's still more fun stuff coming. And anybody who's interested should check out the news site at Science for all of our coverage at that's the meeting. That's awesome. Yeah, yes. it's sciencemag.org if anybody's interested that's in right. checking out the stories that's we've right. talked about. Thank you so much, Dave. Thanks, Megan. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. There you'll also find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, and many other places. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.